Our text this morning has already been read by Brother Ryan in John chapter 1, so we will not uh, read that text again. Before we begin, let's again look to the Lord. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning and pray, Almighty God, that You would indeed speak to our hearts. And Father, may we see the glory of You and Your Son this morning. And may we worship You in spirit and truth. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Proverbs tells us that we are to get wisdom, to get understanding. We are not to forsake her, and she will preserve us. We are to love her, that is wisdom, and she will keep us. Wisdom, says the Proverbs, is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, according to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 16, says this, How much better to get wisdom than of gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. John's audience here in the Gospel of John is aimed primarily towards the Gentiles. Primarily towards the Greeks. And it was Paul who said that the Greeks themselves sought after wisdom. But the problem was is that the Gentiles, the Greek audience that John is writing to, was truly looking for wisdom in all the wrong places. You see, for the Greeks, knowledge was everything. And that desire for them to have the knowledge of the truth was essential to their very life. As a matter of fact, they have a, had a word for that. It was referred to as the gnosis. In all their understanding, it was so important that they had an understanding of the gnosis. But the gnosis was something, this knowledge... Uh, the divine meaning behind the universe. It was something that was not easily easily grasped. It was an esoteric understanding, if you will. That was why Aristotle's students referred to were referred to as the esoterics. So this this wisdom that ruled the universe was not something concrete that you could put your hands on. It was something that was out there. Something deep, profound, celestial, heavenly. Something intangible. Something that we could not easily get our minds wrapped around. And then there was another word that was also closely associated with this word gnosis. And that word is the word that we have here in John's Gospel. Look there in our text. In the beginning was the Word. The word there for word in the original language is the word logos. Logos, which was similar to the word gnosis, was that uh, in, in, in the Greek mind, it was that understanding of the divine reason that was behind the universe. 
So this, this Logos was something of a godlike source, a mysterious uh, answer that reveals to us everything which was important. Okay, so you have this gnosis and the way this mysterious wisdom and understanding was conveyed was, was through the Lagos, through that which was spoken. Now we know that the Greeks were big upon discussion and dialogue and they would do that on street corners. They would uh, discuss the gnosis or the Lagos behind the very meaning of life. And sometimes they would do that in a lecture hall and sometimes it would be in a very informal sense where they expressed their thoughts of the Logos and they conveyed that. The the word Logos, don't let me run you away by getting too technical this morning, but the word Logos probably comes from the Greek word Lego, which means I speak. So they actually spoke this this meaning, this reason behind the universe to one another. It was the most important thing as they discussed this with one another. Now, on the other hand, I've showed you the, the thoughts behind the Gentile world and how they, would review, how they would view this word logos, this word word. But on the other hand, there were also those that were picking up this gospel and they would be reading it too. They would be the, the Hebrews. And when they would read in chapter 1 or verse 1 concerning the logos or the word, they would have an entirely different take upon that. For, for to the Hebrew mind, when they saw the word word or debar in the Hebrew, that was to them a great expression of the power and the authority of God. We know in the, in the very own, in the book of Genesis, when God spoke, the world was created. We learned this morning in Sunday school that the first command was, God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light because God had spoken. So you see, this is so interesting. Uh, you pick up this Gospel of John, can you imagine this, in the first century, and whether you were a Greek, a Gentile, or a Hebrew, when you saw the Word, Word, John had your attention. What's he talking about? How is he using this? What's he saying? So we begin this discussion of the Word. Now this morning, I know many of you are very familiar with John chapter 1. Think of it as, think of yourself this morning as one who's never read this before. And this Word, Word, has been announced to you. In the beginning was the Word. Wow, your curiosity has been piqued in the very beginning? Now this beginning that John is referring to no doubt has some reference to the in the beginning in Genesis when God created everything. Now John is telling us whoever this Word is that the Word was in the beginning. And not only was the Word in the beginning 
Evidently, this Word existed before the beginning of the beginning because the Word was present before anything began. So we're astounded at who this Word is. And we're told, and the Word was with God. And then we're furthermore told that the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 3, we're told that the, it was through the Word that everything that was made was made through Him and without Him, nothing that was made was made. He's the Creator as well. In verse 4, we're told that in Him there was life and His life was the light of men. Then it refers to John who came as one who was not that light, but He came to bear witness to the light that was to come. And then in verse 14, we read on that this Word, oh, this is interesting, this Word, this eternal Word that was with God, that was God, that this Word became flesh. This Word took upon Himself humanity. And many beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John again bore witness of this Word that was to come. He is to be preferred before me, John says, because He was before me. Now how could that be? Because John was born before Jesus, John the Baptist. But He was the Word that was before John. He is the eternal one. So you see, you see, Greek, what's he talking about? He's got our attention here. Or or a Hebrew, this Word. And then we read in verse 16, and of the fullness of His grace we all have received. And then he says in verse 17, as he reiterates back upon one of the most significant events of the Old Testament, the giving of the law, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Imagine yourself. First time you ever read John. 17 verses talking about the Word. The obvious question was, who is this Word? And then he says in verse 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Wow. You see the build up here. John reaches his zenith, the pinnacle of everything that he's saying concerning the one who was, the one who is, and the one that is to come. The eternal wisdom of God in the Word was none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's during this Christmas season that we think about this mind-boggling event that we refer to as the Incarnation. When the glory and the majesty and the supremacy and the power of God took upon human flesh and dwelt among us. And you know, this time of the year, we're we're prone to reminisce about these things that we see. We see the nativity scenes and the beauty that they offer. And yet so often the true glory of Christmas is not seen. Because for many they look at that nativity, nativity scene and they say, oh, isn't that nice? There's the birth of Jesus. 
And they don't think about all of the glory and who He is and how that the, the one there laying in the manger scene did not have His beginnings in Bethlehem. No, that was simply when the eternal second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. Wow. Our mind is blown this morning, folks. We can't grasp these truths. But oh, they're marvelous to us. Spurgeon said, He was the infant who was the infinite one. While Mary was carrying Jesus, Jesus was carrying the world. We sing Charles from Charles Wesley's hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. That God was with us. That God had come down to His people. Think of this. Jesus was a king and a lord at His birth. He was not born a prince waiting to someday to attain the throne. He was on the throne when He was in the manger. He was a king at birth. He was the sovereign Lord even when He was the babe in the manger. He reigned from the heavenly throne and yet in a manger because He was the eternal I Am, God in the flesh. And yet He comes to this earth born as a baby with the same needs of any baby. The baby had to be cared for. It had to be nurtured. The diaper had to be changed. He cried when He was uncomfortable. He was in all ways like us. And yet the One who was to come to break the very bondage of sin in men was He Himself also bound in swaddling clothes. The helpless babe, the Almighty God. Truly God, truly man. The only One that was ever qualified to be the perfect mediator between God and man because He was both God and man. And the Scripture says here in John chapter 1 that we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He came to us and tabernacled or dwelt among us that we might see Him, that we might... uh, have something of an understanding of what He was like. And again, He took upon Himself all of the inadequacies of flesh, of human nature, taking on the form of a creature. He breathed as we breathe. He ate and He drank. He worked and He sweated. He grew weary. He was misunderstood. And He was rejected. He was also tempted in all ways as we are tempted, yet He was without sin. This morning, this is an inexhaustible subject when we think about the One who's come to us. But this morning, I want us to look in the text and see just three things that Christ came to bring us. And those three things are life, light, and peace. 
First of all, He came to bring us life. The Scripture says there in John chapter 1 and verse 4, In Him was life. Now what do we mean by that? Well indeed, we've seen there in in verse 3 that He was the Creator. He was the very source of life. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us that for by Him and through Him all things that were created in heaven and on earth were created by Him and that all things were created through Him and for Him and He is before all things and in Him all things consist. He's the Creator. He's the God of all providence that holds things together. He is indeed the essence of life Himself because He is the Creator of life. But I think this verse is talking more just about uh, our existence in this physical life. I think He's talking here much more about the kind of life that was found in Jesus. And that was a life of absolute quality. Keep your place there in John. And... Turn with me, if you will, a few verses over, a few chapters over, to John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer to His Father before He goes to the cross. These words Jesus spoke as He lifted up His eyes to heaven... Again, John 17, verse 1. And He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son also may glorify You. As You have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given unto Him. The source of life here prays that the Father would give eternal life to all those that were given to Him by the Father. And then He tells us in verse 3 how that we receive this quality of life. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. You see that? Very, very clear here. God gave His Son in order that we might receive the kind of life that is with God, that eternal life, a life that will never end through what? Through knowing Him. Through our knowledge of Him. Isn't that plain and simple? That that God wants us to know Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what. Man sure goose it up here. They make it so difficult. This past week, someone came up, came to me and I was talking with them and they had an understanding that we are all born in this world with original sin. And his question was, how can we get rid of that original sin? What does that mean? We're born sinners. And because we're born as sinners, we're going to sin. And because we're a sinner, we're liable to the judgment of God. Okay? We, we, we need life from Him. How do we receive that, He said? How do we get rid of this original sin? And He thought that 
Original sin could be done away with through being baptized as an infant or being christened, you see. You felt that that, got, that did away with original sin. You know, let's just think about this. Is, is that logical at all? Is that logical? That this stuff here would be an easy fix, wouldn't it? Get rid of it. A little shot here, all my sins go. Is that not ridiculous? That's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, Ed, Ed's on the front pew here. I want to speak to him. Ed, can you imagine me? I'm in a raging river, and I'm about to drown. I can't swim. I don't have a life jacket on, and Ed sees me, and he jumps in. And Ed's a powerful, strong swimmer. He jumps in this torrent of a raging current and he grabs a hold of me and he pulls me to safety. And, and I said, man, this is wonderful. And then Ed said, well, Rick, he said, you know, I don't want you to forget this. I'm going to give you a, a little token here. Maybe he gives me a necklace, put it around my neck. I can remember this. And I can remember, wow, this is, in the future I can look to this and I can say, this is what I would say, oh, I love this token so much. This is the most beautiful token that I can ever imagine. I am so proud of it because when I was in great need, uh, this token saved me from the raging currents and this token delivered me and I, I, I just love you token. That's about as ridiculous as thinking that water can, can save us. No, I should be thinking, look at that, and that reminds me of Ed and how he risked his life in a valiant display of courage to save me. You see, Jesus came, look at your text there in John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may experience you, not just the head knowledge, but you might, that they may know Christ in a relationship with Him based upon what He's doing, what He did. He's on the way to the cross, right? To provide our salvation. So baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us. We don't, we don't think about the water and, uh, and praise the water. We praise the Christ who saved us by His substitutionary death and through the fact that we can come to know in a direct relationship this all-powerful God. And we can give Him praise. And we receive life. Oh, it's so simple. How do we receive this life? Is it through hanging on to some formula or, or believing in some... Uh, ordinance in the church? No, it's through relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing Him. And then, again, we mix it up, don't we? There's, there's still 2,000 years of Christendom and there are still people that believe that if my good works outweigh my bad works, I can make it into heaven. But the Scripture says, and if you've got, got your Bibles open there, let's flip over to Romans chapter 4. Paul uses one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament as an example that works can never save us. Even those in the Old Testament were not saved by works. In Romans chapter 4, we'll begin with verse 2. 
What if Abraham what what if Abraham was justified by his works? Then he would have something to boast about, wouldn't he? But not before God. What does the scripture say? To the contrary, folks, Abraham believed God. He had a knowledge of God, he had a relationship with God, and this trust in God, through this trust, through this belief in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Theologians refer to this as a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that was not his own. The perfection of God was given to him. And how was it given to him? By his good works? No. Look at verse 4. Now, now to him who does work, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You, you go to work and you give your employer eight hours, and because of your work, the, the, the employer owes you a certain amount of money based upon what you've done. But that's not the way it is with God. Because we could never do enough works to merit ourselves before God. We would have to be completely, totally perfect. If we had ever sinned one time in thought, word, or deed, that would be enough to keep us out of heaven because God is actually absolutely holy, just, and righteous, and He's too holy to allow one sin to come into His presence. Look at verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So you see, we who were dead in sin, walking according to our own way, doing our own thing, need this life that comes from God and the only perfect righteousness that comes from Him. So we simply know Him. When we come to know Him through belief in Him, through trust in what He has done, we receive life. In Him was life. Why do we need life? Because we're dead in our transgressions and our sins. We have no spiritual life in us. In Him was life. And His life was the light of men. And this is the good news. As we think about this during this Christmas season, during this first Advent, that Christ was born, not that we would just look to Him and, 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 and indeed uh, magnify Him through the glory of the Incarnation, but He was one that was born to die. He was one who was on the way to the cross. That's why we read in John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, in verse 15, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes has the knowledge of, trusts in, is in relationship with Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As we are in this Christmas season now, I pray that we have received life from the very source of life. Well, not only did Christ come to give us life, but He also came to give us light. Look here in our text. Verse 4, chapter 1. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
Whoa, we, you know, this word light is used over 20 times in John's Gospel. When we see Christ, when we read about His ministry in the Gospels, we see light. We see a different type of person that had ever been on the scene before. We saw someone who taught with authority. We saw, we saw one who loved the outcast and the sinner. We saw one that was brave enough to be stern before the self-righteous. There was light in him. John says in 1 John, that epistle, he said God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He came to give his life in order that we might have life and see his Light. Look at look at verse uh, verse five. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. This whole concept of light and darkness is so central to the writer here, John. He he shows the the distinction between light and darkness. When we when we think of this word darkness, which John also uses in his writings approximately fourteen times, what do we think about when we think about darkness? Chaos, difficulty. But you know, mankind, God is light, but mankind is characterized in the Word of God as one who is in darkness. It's like. In, in Christ there was life in us. There's death. We're dead in sins. In God, there is absolute light. He lives in unapproachable light. That's not the case with unredeemed man. He's characterized as one who is in darkness. Yes, his understanding has been darkened. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, the Scripture tells us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. This world that we live in is a place of darkness against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And then our text says to us, look at this very closely here, in verse 5, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What does that mean? The darkness did not understand it, the NIV, NIV reads. Other translations say that it was the darkness was not accepted or the darkness was not appropriated because of the very nature of men. Now look in, in chapter uh, verse 10 there, chapter 1 and verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. We, we said Christ the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, was also the Creator. And then look at this though. And the world did not know Him. The world didn't comprehend Him. The Creator came to this earth in flesh. We didn't understand who He was. We did not know Him. Look at verse 11. He came unto His own. That's his, the, the people of His own domain. His very creation. The creatures that He created. He came unto them. And they did not receive Him. Receive him. He came to his own ethnic family. He came unto his own, and his own, the second use of the word own there probably refers to the Jew. He came unto his own people, and they did not receive him. You see, the people from his own family didn't even understand who he was. His brothers and sisters at first didn't grasp who he was. You see, the light has come, and yet we have not 
understood he who he was. In John chapter 3, this is the reason. Look at verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And who is the light? The Lord Jesus Christ. And men love their darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, because when they got in the light, their deeds were exposed. And they would run away from the light because they loved their evil evil deeds. That's what verse 20 says. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, nor and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So, he came, the light of the world came, and men loved their darkness rather than the light. Now, some have said that this word here, uh, comprehend, in chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, can be translated overcome. The light has come, but, uh, but the darkness does not overcome it or does not extinguish it. I don't think that's probably the best translation, but no, no doubt that, that is true as well. Because the light, brothers and sisters, the light of Christ does ultimately win over the darkness of this world. We sing a, Christ, a hymn during this time of the year. I heard the bells on Christmas Day and one of the stanzas says, the, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Yes, indeed, the light wins in the end. The light shall prevail and God will be seen and He will be glorified. Maybe not completely and totally by His second advent, but certainly by by His first advent, but certainly by His second (coughs) advent. Some years ago, our family took a a trip to Mammoth Cave, and as we were on the tour in Mammoth Cave, the tour guide shut all the lights out. And I tell you, you have never seen darkness like the darkness in a cave. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And then the tour guide struck a little match and that darkness dispelled. You could see everything in that cave because of that little tiny light. Yes, in fact, the darkness shall not overcome the light because Christ, He is the light of the world. And His plans and His purposes shall be revealed to all. Look at verse 9. We see this very clearly here. In verse 9, chapter 1 and verse 9. That, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, was the true light which gives light to every man coming in the world. Did did you catch that? Now what's this verse talking about? We're going to dig deeply here into this verse. What it is not teaching is that there is a perfect unequivocal equality uh, concerning the recipients of this light. That's not what what it says. So we should not read it simply that this this, uh, light that is given is given equally to everyone. Let's read it like this. You know, the only thing in the Bible that is inspired are the words. The numerical 
numbers concerning the verses, nor the punctuation is not inspired. Well, let's read it like this. That was the true light. Put a big fat comma there. That was the true light, which gives light to every man. Another comma, coming into the world. So you see, the coming into the world does not relate to every man in the world, but the coming into the world was in reference to the subject of the sentence, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light. So the true light which was coming into the world came in order to give light unto people. The NASB reads it like this, the true light which was coming into the world enlightens every man. But you say, what is this true light? Well, first of all, the true light is not human wisdom or human reasoning or even the conscience. Nor is it the light of creation which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. These refer to God's common grace and His general revelation of Himself. And all of those things are sufficient to condemn us but not to save us. But the light of Christ is referring to one thing. That is the light of Christ itself and the Gospel. But the way this light is dispensed, folks, is very mysterious. Some receive the light. Some do not receive the light. Remember when Jesus was teaching about the parable of the sower? Uh, some soil, uh, some seed fell upon good soil and brought forth glorious fruit. But some seed fell on different types of soil and no fruit at all was seen. It's a mysterious work. The light of God is dispersed Some receive it. Some do not. One brother may receive it. A sister not. One wife receives it, but the husband does not. And so on and so forth. It is in fact a sovereign work of God. Let's look in 2 Corinthians. As you're turning there to to, to 2 Corinthians, I'm I'm thinking back to Paul's message in 1 Corinthians. You do not have to turn there. But I'm thinking about what Paul said to the church there in Corinth that, you know, we, we preach the gospel and the message of the cross is foolishness to those who hear. And they don't want to hear it. Uh, but when Paul said, you see, you know, when I, when I preached to you, again, speaking against the Greeks, he didn't rep- reply, rely upon human wisdom. He didn't seek to be eloquent and a perfect speaker, but he relied upon the demonstration of the Spirit and in power. And he said there that we speak the wisdom of God the true wisdom of God, which was the gospel, but yet it is given in a ministry, in a a mystery, excuse me, and it is a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the own ages for His glory. So you see, it's our responsibility to be faithful, to, to bear witness to Christ, 
and let God dispense His light as He sees fit. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's just begin with verse 1. Therefore, since we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth. It's our job just to set forth the truth plainly. Not relying upon ourselves, but commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel is veiled or it's hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Remember the first seed that fell along the wayside and Satan quickly came and gobbled up the seed, which is the Word? That happens. That's going to happen in the course of events. Satan blinds men and they do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine upon them. Again, in verse 5, Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant for Jesus' sake. Now look at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. You see there's reference there to God speaking. Let there be light. And there was light. God commanded this. And in a like way, just as He did in creation, He does this when we were regenerated, when we're born again, when we receive the light of God. For God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light. What is this light? The light is of the knowledge of the glory of God. How is it seen? It's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. We look to Him. We believe in Him. We trust in Him. We come into relationship and we receive His life and His life was in fact the light of all men. Wow. And no longer then do we grope about in the darkness because the light of God has shone upon us. You remember the the light that was placed above the Christ. And the Magi saw the light and they went to the place where Jesus was. That's why we're here today to celebrate this Advent, children, this Advent season because we are no longer children of darkness, but now we are children of light because of what Christ has done for us. Are you a child of light? Have you received the life of Christ Himself? You know, this is a good time of the year to see the light of Jesus. We see the lights. We, we listen to the carols. We, we think about the star that we placed upon the tree, which is significant of the light of Christ who was to, to come. We see the nativity scenes. We hear the Gospel preached on the TV, the radio. In our local churches, the gospel goes forth. In all of this, though, folks, really, have you personally come into a relationship 
with Christ where you know beyond any shadow of doubt that I have received this glorious quality of life and I have this light in my life. The light of the glory of gospel which is seen in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall have the light of life and shall not walk in darkness. Praise the Lord. He has come to give us life and light, but He's also come to give us peace. Now this is something we don't see directly in John, but we see it in many other places. Christ is the one who came to usher in peace during His first advent, And for sure, He is referred to as the Prince of Peace who will usher in complete and total peace when sin is done away with when He comes again. It was Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 and verse 79 that Jesus would be the one to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, as the angels were praising God and crying out to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on peace to men upon whom His favor rests. There's peace promised to us who have come to a knowledge of Christ, who live in the grace of Christ. And you know, during this Advent season that we're in, we see this general peace of God displayed among people. And people are generally in a little bit more jovial spirit than they are normally. Yesterday we went to Walmart and did a little shopping and and everybody seemed to be in a pretty good mood. You know, even though, though we were shoulder to shoulder in there, many, many times while we were in there, we heard the words, Merry Christmas, you see. People are a little, little happier. Why is that? It's because the Prince of Peace has come. Even to those who don't know Him personally. Thank God for the the peace that He has established. And that's just a foretaste of what's coming in the future, folks. You know, I think of during World War I, when the fighting raged and the men were fighting in in the trenches, on December the 25th, there was a ceasefire. And they came out of those trenches and they celebrated it was, a ta- it was at least a day of peace. And they gave one another gifts. Sometimes it was cigarettes or whatever, whatever they had. Little trinkets. They gave gifts. And they played uh, what, what those people in Europe call football. We call it soccer. They had a game together. And they enjoyed one another's company. But guess what? On December the 26th, they were trying to kill one another again. You see. But the peace that Christ gives is a peace that is never taken away. Are you at peace with God? There's two kinds of peace the Scripture speaks about. First of all, there is the objective peace that we need with God. Why is that? Because the sinner is estranged from God. He's at enmity. He's at odds with God. And there needs to be a peace treaty made. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, let's, let's, let's quickly turn there. Romans 5 and verse 1. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Abraham was justified by faith. He, he didn't work his way to heaven. God gave him the righteousness. Uh, when we're justified, some have said it's just like we've never sinned. We are, our record has been expunged. All of the guilt, the shame, the sin has been taken away. And we now are in right relationship with us. God is at peace with us because we have accepted the perfect sacrifice for sin. The media, only mediator between God. We have believed and through our knowledge of Him, we now come into a place of peace with God. Objectively, in a legal sense, God is no longer angry at us. The enmity is now gone because of the Prince of Peace who stands before us. And we stand before Him in righteousness. But when we receive this legal, objective peace from God, then, because of our relationship with Him, we can have a subjective, inward tranquil peace that only God gives. Jesus said to His disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And the context there was, Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to ascend up into heaven, but He would send the Comforter to come in His absence. That the Holy Spirit would be with all of those who love Him and who know Him, and that they would find strength and comfort in the very presence of God by the person of the Holy Spirit, that they would find peace in Him. And then Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that you may have peace in Me. Jesus was going away again, and He said it this, Whatever you ask in my, ask the Father in my name, He will give you. So we find peace again in our relationship with Him as we speak with Him in prayer. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Wow. Aren't you glad this morning that we have the very life of God within us? The divine nature dwells within us. We're no longer in our death. We no longer walk in darkness, but we have life. And in Him was the light of men. You see, we don't live in that darkness. We don't live in that death. Because we receive this quality, this glorious life that is only from God. This light that is only from God. Yes, we are characterized by, by a life of darkness because of our sin and we live in a dark world. But in the midst of that darkness, the day spring has dawned. The light has appeared. And now we receive the very glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. And through this, we also have that perfect peace which Paul said, because of that, especially this time of the year, we don't have to be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known unto God. And then the peace of 
which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen.